to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. So this is um, TSRA podcast on interrupted arch and VSD with Dr. Kurt Kanner. I'm Josh Rosenblum, one of the adult cardiac surgery residents at Emory University. Um, and today we've got Dr. Cantor, who's um, been a staff surgeon at uh, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta now for nearly 30 years uh, and served as the chief for uh, about 20 of those. Um, so welcome, Dr. Cantor. Uh, thanks for uh, uh, moving this project forward. Today we're going to discuss interrupted arch VSD. Um, can you sort of describe um, your initial approach to, let's say, a three-day-old child who was delivered term and had no prenatal diagnosis, but uh, several days after delivery became progressively tachypnic and acidotic, and the initial echo uh, was unable to show a complete arch? So uh, this is a common scenario, uh, although in uh, these days of uh, prenatal diagnosis, it's sometimes hard to see the interrupted arch on the prenatal echo. So uh, it's, we will often, these patients who are undiagnosed and come in as you described um, with some shock and acidosis. So. The first thing we have to do is resuscitate the baby. Typically, this involves just starting prostaglandin, correcting their electrolytes, uh, intubation if necessary, and get the baby better. Almost always, uh, an echo provides all the information we need to uh, proceed with uh, surgical repair. And the things that we are looking at on the echo are uh, return of ventricular function, because if they're uh, quite uh, ill coming in, they may have depressed uh, ventricular function until the ductus opens and uh, and the restored circulation. So, uh, the other thing uh, we're interested in is the type of interrupted arch. As you know, there are three types, uh, cleverly named A, B, and C, which are in reverse order if you think of it as the aorta. C is the interruption is just to pass the uh, uh, anominate artery between the anominate artery and left carotid artery. B, which is by far the most common, uh, is between the uh, left carotid artery and left subclavian artery. And it is not uncommon that the type B, which will have an aberrant right subclavian artery, which is retroesophageal. What that means is that the anominate artery does not exist in the first branch, of course, after the coronaries from the ascending aorta, is the right carotid artery, then the left carotid artery, then an interruption, and then the ductus supplies the descending thoracic aorta, and usually the left subclavian and retroesophageal right, aberrant right subclavian, come off near each other. That has implications because that usually uh, is associated with a smaller ascending aorta and more, in my experience, more left ventricular outflow tract obstruction. So that raises flags as to uh, whether the left ventricular outflow tract is going to be adequate. So. We've determined that the ductus is patent. We've determined the type of aortic interruption. Uh, now we have to focus on the VSD uh, and the left ventricular outflow tract. So um, 
usually this is referred to as a malalignment outlet perimembranous ventricular septal defect and all that means is that there's a bar of muscle underneath the aortic valve which usually dips into the left ventricular outflow tract and can cause obstruction. With the most uh, common type B interrupted aortic arch uh, without an aberrant right subclavian almost always the left ventricular outflow tract is adequate and the and the VST is um, is um, unrestrictive and can be closed without concern about the left trigger alpha tract. In the very rare type C, which percentage of these patients will have um, uh, inadequate left trigger alpha tract structures, either subaortic obstruction or a hypoplastic aortic valve, uh, or just too small of ascending aorta. The other thing that uh, we uh, need to be aware of, but it will not affect the surgical management of the patient, uh, but is something you have to keep in mind, is that uh, commonly these patients will have DeGeorge syndrome, 22Q11 uh, microdeletion, and that uh, has an effect uh, on their uh, calcium metabolism, and in the early postoperative period, they'll need a lot of calcium, and also has an effect on their immunologic function long-term. Are there any predisposing factors or associated congenital anomalies, genetic anomalies, that may either delay surgical intervention or um, change your discussion with the family as far as uh, what your planning and expectations would be for the child? Well, if they have some uh, terrible other associated problem like trisomy uh, 13, or trisomy 18, then we would probably recommend uh, palliative care, which of course would be fatal. If they come in with a tracheosophageal fistula, then that needs to be dealt with earlier, uh, before the heart surgery. If they have uh, uh, anal atresia, which can happen in these patients, that needs to be dealt with. And certainly if they have necrotizing enterocolitis, it should be uh, dealt with. Now, what if they're uh, very low birth weight? Uh, 1.5 kilograms or so. Then there's there's some controversy there, and there's but I think uh, most centers would uh, try to park this uh, patient in the ICU and let them grow. The problem, of course, uh, with that um, strategy is that they may not grow with an unrestricted VSD uh, and uh, um, the patent ductus. If you're in that bind, nowadays we have an alternative uh, uh, solution, which uh, I must confess I've not used, but it is in our armamentarium, then that could be a candidate for bilateral pulmonary bands and a ductal stent. So for a child then who is of adequate size, term, what is in your mind the optimal timing for surgical intervention? Uh, once the child has recovered from the insult, or if there is no insult uh, pre-surgical, then uh, once there's an available OR time, we just take them to the operating room. I see no benefit in waiting on these children because as the pulmonary vascular resistance uh, drops, the, they will go into heart failure. Basically, once they've cleared their lactate, their uh, creatinine is uh, down, the ductus is open, the ventricular function looks reasonable, then we proceed to surgery. Um, interrupted arch VSD with the potential for LV outflow tract obstruction is certainly one of the most concerning features, at least for preoperative consideration. 
Um, you've alluded to the fact that the degree of LV uh, outflow tract obstruction um, dictates your surgical management of that child. How much of that do you know preoperatively, or is this something that you generally plan to address once you're in the operating room? Well, sometimes this can, can be a, a quite a challenge to determine which approach to take. Um, and uh, as experience, as we gain experience with these uh, babies, we've learned that you can really take what looks to be quite a small left trigraphal tract and proceed with a uh, primary repair, which would involve uh, closing the VSD with or without some muscle resection underneath the left trigraphal tract and primary repair of the interrupted aortic arch. So for a normal size baby, let's say three kilograms, I think a, a five millimeter aortic valve is just uh, fine. And on the other end of the spectrum, if the uh, left trochalpho tract is less than four millimeters in a normal size uh, baby, then I, then I would use, probably go with a uh, modified technique rather than an immediate biventricular repair. It's the group between four and five millimeters that give a challenge. So for the for the children with the inadequate left trochalpho tract, uh, we have uh, embarked on using uh, the Yasui principle, which uh, Yasui was a uh, Japanese surgeon who actually uh, described this for interrupted aortic arch with severe left trochalpho tract obstruction, and this can be done as a one-stage procedure, as a two or as a two-stage procedure. The one-stage procedure would involve uh, channeling the VSD to the pulmonary artery with or without enlargement of the VSD to make an unobstructed pathway from the left ventricle to the pulmonary artery or the pulmonary valve, repairing the interrupted aortic arch, and then creating continuity between the right ventricle to the branch pulmonary arteries with a valved conduit. Alternatively, and our preference of late, although we've done uh, perhaps 30 of these patients, uh, is to stage that. So the first stage would be effectively a, a Norwood operation, uh, usually with a sono shunt, a right ventricular pulmonary artery shunt, and then uh, uh, and it, because there's two good ventricles, these children just sail through the Norwood, and it's, and it's not at all like a, a high plastic left heart syndrome Norwood and then bring them back at uh, six months or so and do a Rastelli-type operation. Mortality risk with that approach is quite low in our experience, but of course you've consigned yourself to uh, repeated uh, reoperations from the right trigger to pulmonary artery conduit replacement. Another potential procedure which we have not employed is a primary Kono procedure. So now let's assume we have a straightforward interrupted arch VSD with no outflow tract obstruction. We've got the child to the operating room. What is your general um, conduct of the operation, your cannulation strategy? There's discussion of hypothermic arrest versus selective cerebral perfusion. So uh, I think that this is very institution and surgeon specific and how you manage it. And, and I don't think there's a, a clear cut right answer, but I'll just tell you how we manage it. Uh, first of all, the anesthetic management for someone with a, a, a bit newborn with a, a large left to right shunt, 
they have to be fairly careful when they're anesthetizing them that they don't drop out their blood pressure and arrest. And our anesthesiologists are very good at that. I, I think they use a fair amount of ketamine. Cannulation strategy, we, uh, right or wrong, are fans of regional perfusion rather than um, deep hypothermic circulatory arrest, and therefore we will use two arterial cannulas. Uh, we'll sew a graft to the anominate artery and cannulate that graft for, to perfuse the proximal aortic arch and then directly cannulate the ductus arteriosus uh, for distal perfusion. I think it's important to perfuse the whole body while you're cooling. Uh, I, I use uh, bicable cannulation. I know a lot of other uh, pe people just use a single right atrial cannula and I put in a left atrial vent. So uh, then we'll go on a bypass. As we go on bypass, we ligate the proximal ductus uh, or just uh, snare the um, right left branch pulmonary arteries and uh, cool down typically to about uh, 20 degrees centigrade. Uh, then we'll uh, cross clamp the aorta uh, and uh, give cardioplegia the rest of the heart. Uh, I, at that point, I'd open up the right atrium close the foramen ovale uh, and uh, close the VSD uh, through the uh, uh, tricuspid valve. Uh, sometimes you, uh, you can see a little muscle bundle uh, in the left trochanter tract which you um, can excise to prevent left trochanter tract obstruction. A little clever trick that I've seen and done is to put a Hagar dilator through the VSD uh, into the aortic valve, and that way, uh, as you're cutting that muscle, the danger of cutting the aortic valve, which of course would be catastrophic, is uh, minimized. Now that the VSD is closed and the foramen ovale is closed, uh, at this point we close the atrium, take out the cannula uh, in the ductus and uh, divide the ductus. Uh, uh, the uh, head and neck vessels have already been widely mobilized, and uh, although there's often a big gap between uh, the proximal and distal arches in a baby, it's fairly easy to um, widely mobilize them so we can do a direct anastomosis. I typically, for a type B interruption, will open up the left lateral aspect of the left carotid artery up for uh, five or six millimeters and a, a corresponding incision in the uh, left subclavian artery, which of course comes off the distal arch, resecting all ductal tissue. I'll do a side-to-side -side anastomosis between the left carotid and left subclavian, which includes the arch, and then augment the undersurface of the arch with a piece of uh, home graft material to prevent uh, distal uh, obstruction. And then you just uh, uh, take all your clamps off and uh, rewarm. The, uh, in a standard patient, they, they have a good ventricular function and, and uh, it's not common that we even have to leave the chest open. We can typically get them closed in the operating room and just... So while the details of a Norwood type operation or Yasui modification are a little bit beyond probably this podcast, for when you're in the operating room with a patient with a four to four and a half millimeter um, outflow tract that you are in the gray area, what are your tricks or techniques in the operating room to really put that child in one camp or the other? 
I, I think uh, at this point, uh, the transophageal echo uh, makes a huge difference, but you've got to recognize that the left ventricular tract is not circular, it's oval. And so what may be uh, three millimeters in one dimension may be five millimeters in another dimension. And uh, working with your uh, cardiologist and, and trying to sort that out makes a big difference. What you cannot rely upon is a gradient because since uh, half of the only half of the cardiac output is going through the left ventricular tract because of the interrupted aortic arch, there's not going to be a gradient even within an inadequate left ventricular tract. For the young surgeon who ha doesn't have a lot of experience, it's hard to uh, use your judgment. My impression is I don't have data to support that, but my impression is if you're doing a biventricular repair in a four and a half millimeter left ventricular tract, things will go swimmingly. You may end up with a 10 or 15 millimeter mercury left ventricular tract gradient, but you pretty much need to plan on that child coming back within the first year or two of life uh, with the recurrent left ventricular tract obstruction, which does not necessarily mean aortic valve replacement. It, it often typically can be dealt with with just an aggressive subaortic resection. Okay. So you've gotten the simple interrupted arch VSD child through the operation and now we're in the ICU postoperatively. What are your keys to management strategy postoperatively um, with some specific mention towards um, whether you have any concern over feeding strategies as far as timing and then any other um, concerns for early intervention for hemodynamic compromise, perhaps unrecognized outflow tract obstruction? No. So uh, I'm very careful in the operating room not only to uh, examine the repair with transophageal echo, but also to measure direct pressures to see, make sure that we've relieved any left ventricular tract obstruction or arch obstruction. Uh, and certainly if there's residual arch obstruction, I think it's important to deal with it at that time and not say, well, it'll be fine or they can balloon dilate it later. You just bite the bullet and go back on bypass and fix any residual arch obstruction. Left trichoralfal tract obstruction is a different story. And certainly if it's less than 20 with reasonable hemodynamics, you're probably okay. But if it's more than 20, then you may need to rethink and, and, and go to a Norwood route, which is a big deal and a child's already had a big operation. Uh, since I closed the VSD through the um, tricuspid valve, there's a lot of tugging, especially to get up there uh, superiorly, and I find that uh, a lot of these children will have post-operative uh, junctional ectopic tachycardia. So for the first 24 hours uh, post-operatively, I tend to keep them cool, uh, 35 or 36 degrees. That's uh, well tolerated hemodynamically. It, I think it reduces the risk of uh, uh, jet and also reduces the metabolic demands. Uh, then uh, it's just a matter of uh, allowing them to diurese uh, after the pump run. Typically that takes three or four days, get the lungs uh, cleared up and get them extubated. If you have DeGeorge, you almost have to count on feeding issues. Uh, and uh, even if they don't have DeGeorge, they may have feeding issues. Uh, we, we will, um, once uh, the hemodynamics are good, uh, even before we extubate, we'll start uh, enteral feeds with a nasogastric tube and then uh, just progress as tolerated. If it's the happy patient who'll take a, a bottle, then we're fine, but we have no trouble going with uh, 
tube feeds and will actually uh, send our patients home with nasogastric tube feeds, which is contrary to what many institutions do. And our experience is that within a few weeks of discharge, they're taking everything by mouth. For routine, simple, um, interrupted arch VSD patients who do well postoperatively, do you routinely get um, echocardiography or cath imaging prior to discharge and in your immediate postoperative follow-up? Well, certainly if things are not going well, we'll get an echo and or cath. But if things are going well, then we'll get uh, uh, just a routine echo before discharge to assess uh, uh, three things. Uh, the attic, to make sure that the VSD is indeed closed, uh, to look at the left trichoral alpha tract, and to um, assess the arch repair. Recognizing that the development of left trichoral alpha tract obstruction, if it's going to occur, will be within the first year or two after the operation, and so that has to be watched for closely. So what do you tell parents, uh, speaking of long-term or late, um, either LVOT obstruction or arch obstruction, what do you tell parents as far as um, their expectations or your expectations of the child in terms of what they might need in the future? So for the arch, I will tell the parents that it's unusual for them to develop arch obstruction, probably less than 10%, and if that occurs in those rare instances, almost certainly it can be dealt with in the cath lab without another operation. On the other hand, I do say that there is a real in incidence of left trichoral tract obstruction progressing, and they'll be followed for that, and that they may require a surgery in the future, and I'll tell them that the risk of that is perhaps 25% uh, or so. So for the children who've had um, a Norwood uh, type operation initially with LV outflow tract obstruction, you mentioned initially that um, timing for their second intervention and formal repair is usually somewhere around six months of age. Um, what hemodynamic factors, growth factors are you looking for in terms of timing that? Well, since you're going to you're doing a Rastelli type procedure and are going to have to put in a right ventricular pulmonary valve conduit, you want the child as big as possible to get the biggest conduit in. So therefore, um, we would routinely catheterize these child, children at three months postoperative just to make sure everything looks good, see what the hemodynamics are, see what the branch pulmonary arteries are. If there are no issues, then we wait as long as possible, and what directs us to operation is the saturations. As they outgrow their sono shunt, uh, they'll get bluer, and so when they get in their sats, is, are steadily now in the 70s, and that's time for operation. Uh, and we've had a few that had to come back at four or five months. So almost always we're able to get out six months. We've had occasionally go out to nine or ten months. Well, thank you for your time and discussing this interesting topic. Again, my pleasure.